We've been cruising through Colossians, and today is going to be our last message in this series as we've kind of taken Paul's letter to the, the believers at the city of Colossae in Asia Minor, and we've kind of dissected it. And, and I hope it's been a uh, beneficial series to you. It has been to me as I've studied, as I've taught it, as I begin to apply its principles to my life. Most recently, we've been talking about some radical relationships that Jesus has called us to, that God has called us through, in this case, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Apostle Paul. And we talked about the relationships between husbands and wives, how that changed all of culture. We talked about the radical relationship between parents and children, where children were kind of really such a, a, a low place in society that ancient historians didn't even write about them. We talk about Last week, between the radical relationships between slaves and their masters, and we, we talked about that whole issue of slavery in, in the first century and where Paul was coming from on it. But what we did there is we applied what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to slaves and masters to now employers and employees, saying that we need to have a strong Christian work ethic, be it an employer or an employee, we are responsible to each other, and through Jesus Christ, we are equal with each other, and God has given us reciprocal relationships and obligations to perform. Now, today, as we close out this, this series, and the series is available, by the way, they asked me to show this to you. Some of you have asked if the series would be available when I was finished. It will be after the service today, and you can get all the CDs, uh, or also, you can go on our website, and you can download the series uh, to an iPad or whatever you want to listen on. And uh, if you want to revisit some of the lessons that we've had. So today we're going to look at the radical relationship between believers and non-believers. Now, what's the difference between a believer and a non-believer? The difference is Jesus. That's the difference. What we do with Jesus. You know, people who are non-believers aren't necessarily terrible, horrible people. They're not at all. Many of them are exemplary. In fact, they have high integrity and high ethics. The difference is they have not put their faith in Jesus alone as the Savior of the world. Believers have. We have done what Paul has uh, taught in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, when Paul said, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we believe that there's no other person, there's no other way that Jesus is supreme and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what makes us believers. And so those who have never done that, although they're great people, many of them, they're not believers in the scriptural, the biblical sense. So let's see what Paul calls us to in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Now, outsiders, in this case, are those unbelievers, those non-believers. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, what I want to do as we close out this series today is I want to break this important passage down because there's a lot in it for me and for you as we relate to our non-believing friends and family members. First, Paul encourages us that we should be wise in the way we act towards outsiders. Now, what's Paul saying here? Is Paul saying you better be careful about those non-believers. You better be careful about letting their influence into your life. Well, Scripture talks about us being careful not to let non-believers influence us as believers. But what he's really talking about here is our sensitivity to those who are non-believers. 
And he says that we should be wise in the way that we interact with them, the way that we approach them, the way that we, that, that we relate to them. James 3.13, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? He asks that question. Now, we know that, that we need to be wise in our relationship with unbelievers. So James says, well, who's that? Who, who's wise? Who is that person? What does that person look like? Then he answers his question. He says, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that's generated by what? Wisdom. See, so wisdom for the believer is a good life. It's good deeds that are offered in humility. What does that mean? We're not condescending. Well, I'm better than you are because I'm a believer. And I'm better than you are. God loves me more than he does you because you live a pagan life. You know, that's not Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying we need to be careful. We need to be wise. And that's what James is saying too. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Make it your ambition. All right, so as believers, here's our ambition. This is what we should be ambitious about if we're going to be ambitious about anything. He says, first, to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that we should be secret agents for Jesus. You know, that we should don't tell anybody that you are associated with Jesus. It's not that kind of a quiet life. It's a quiet life that's characterized by not being condescending, not being obnoxious about our faith, but of of being a a presence, a steadying, a calming, a peaceful presence in the life of people. He says, let your ambition be to lead that kind of life. Aren't you glad that God hasn't called us to be an in-your-face group of people? Aren't you glad he doesn't say, say, here's what you need to do. You need to go to the pagan people and you need to poke them in the chest and say that they better trust Jesus Christ as a savior. They're going to die and go to hell. (laughs) Aren't you glad he hasn't called us? Man, I am. I don't don't know if I'd want to be a part of that. He says, no, that's not what I'm calling you to. He says, I just want you to live a quiet life. I want you to be a presence. He says, to mind your own business. What does that mean? It's not to be part of the gossip mill. Not to be part of that negative grapevine. And, oh, it's so easy to get caught up in that, isn't it? It's so easy to pass on that, that juicy information about someone particularly who we don't like or particularly who has been abrasive and offensive to us. And Paul says, no, that's not, that's, that's not what God has called us to. He, he's, he's called us to, to mind our own business, to not be part of that. Goes on to say, and to work with your hands. So he's talking about what we what we talked about in our relationship with work. That we are to be those who work the hardest. We're to be those who put an honest day's work in for in exchange for an honest day's wage. We don't need to be the kind of folks that everyone is saying, You're a Christian? Man, you don't even carry your weight around here. Yeah, you cut corners. You you We need to be the kind of presence, that quiet life, that steady life, that exemplary life that isn't obnoxious, isn't in your face, but it's characterized by being loving, by working hard, leading the way at work, leading the way in our families. He says, just as we told you, 
So, and here's the key, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. See, that's the key. We don't poke our finger in their chest. We don't cast aspersions and accusations at them. Here's what God's called me to do. Here's what God's called you to do. Just to live a quiet life. Be a presence. And let the way we live our lives speak of our faith in Jesus. You know, I don't know of anybody in my experience that has come to faith in Christ through an argument about it. Through getting there and saying, all right, now I know what you believe, but you believe a lie and you're of the devil. I don't know of anybody who says, you know, you're right. I need to trust Jesus. Where people come to faith, and I've heard this testimony over and over and over again. So I said, you know, I know somebody who comes to your church. I just met a lady last week. was her first time at the church. And she says, I've got this neighbor who's, who's been telling me about your church for years. And she said, finally, I said, I, 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 this woman is such an amazing woman. I said, i got to go see this place. She came for the last time last Sunday. She was here again this Sunday. See, that's what, that's what it's about, of just being somebody who others respect because of the way we live our daily lives, consistently, day after day, in whatever circumstance presents itself, and we are going to endure as believers every circumstance that life throws at people, right? I mean, any of you who are believers, since you became a believer, never had another hard day in your life. Well, there's the answer, right? Any of you believers who've never been sick a day since you trusted Christ as your Savior, never had a relationship problem, never had a work problem? No. In fact, the opposite has been true. Why? Because as we faithfully walk through those daily experiences that everyone else walks through, but we walk through a different way, with a different presence, with a different integrity, with a different ethic, with a different faith, when people themselves are visited by those same trials, we're the ones that are going to pick out. We're going to say, man, I saw you go through this. How did you do it? You didn't lose your head. I'm going crazy here. What, what's different? See, so it's just being a presence. That's all God causes us to. 1 Peter 2.12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. Remember I told you last week about a lady in the church who was in a very toxic work environment and people were saying of her, you, you just think you're better than the rest of us. She says, I never said that once. I've never said anything like that. Yes, she has. She's lived it through living that daily life. See, nothing we have to verbalize. It's just who we are. And when, when non-believers start connecting the dots with how believers live, they should see a difference. That's what Paul's calling us to. That's the radical relationship. He says, I'm not calling you to a relationship where you're chameleon, you blend in. I'm calling you to a relationship where you quietly, sensitively stand out. And that's Peter's speaking about. That's what Paul's speaking about. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your what? Good deeds, and here's the key, and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
John MacArthur said this, wisdom involves properly evaluating circumstances and making godly decisions. Now, then he goes on to say, and I love this. When I read this, it really, really resonated with me. He said, Christians are to exhibit a carefully planned, consistent, righteous Christian life. I love that. I wish it was scripture. It's not. But the whole idea is that we need to plan how we're going to live. We need to plan how we're going to present ourselves at work. We need to plan on how we're going to present ourselves in business deals. We need to plan on how we're going to present ourselves to our family. And that plan is to live a quiet life and to live an exemplary life and to work hard so that other people don't have to do their work and our work also. And by that, even though they're going to accuse us sometimes of of, of being know-it-alls and goody-goodies, when times get tough, we are the people they're going to come to to help navigate them through the turbulent waters they're in. And that's all Jesus calls us to. He goes on to say, we also need to make the most of every opportunity. What does that mean? What does that look like? William Barclay, another great theologian of old, said this, daily life and work are continually offering men and women opportunities to witness for Christ and to influence people for him. I mean, Daily. We have those opportunities. But it goes on to say, but there are also so many who avoid the opportunities instead of embracing him. You know, it's kind of like what Jesus said to his disciples as he was overlooking the multitudes. And he had compassion on them. He says, they're like sheep that have no shepherd. They're like people who have no leader. See, it's not that we don't have plenty of opportunity. Tell me you don't have an opportunity in your workplace to shine a different light than most of the other people are shining. It's not that we don't have opportunity. It's that also too often we want to kind of just be back in the shadows. We want to live such a quiet life that no one knows we're there. See, but we need to make the most of the opportunities that we have every day at school, every day at work, every day in our families, every day just in society in general. Now, sometimes we're going to have to readjust some things to do that. And one thing, we may need to readjust our routine. You know, I, I got to thinking about myself and my own routine. And I'm a really kind of routine guy. I really am. I mean, I get up at the same time, and I go through the same steps. I get up, you know, make the bed. I get up. I go brush my teeth. I shave. You know, I do my, you know, I mean, I'm pretty regimented. But here's what we do. We, we can get so regimented in our routines that we're following numbly this plan, this routine every day, unaware of what's going on around us. Get in the car at the same time, drive the same route to work, get to work, and we hide in our cubicle or do whatever we're going to do. I mean, we're so routine that we don't see opportunity because we're too structured to see opportunity. So we got to mix it up a little. You know, don't do it all the same way every single day of our life. Now, we might be comfortable doing that, and trust me, as an introvert, I'm comfortable with routine. I love routine. But we need to get out of that. We need to expose ourselves to opportunities that are there. They're there. We just need to open our eyes. Jesus said, it's not that that, that the fields aren't ripe on the harvest, he said to his disciples. He said, the problem is the workers are few. The problem is we got our blinders on. We're doing our thing and we're comfortable in our thing and we're not opening ourselves up. Involves ratcheting up our resistance. 
I, I can't tell you how many people throughout my life and throughout my ministry that I've counseled who are getting in relationships with unbelievers, whether business relationships or marriage relationships or whatever, saying, I'm going to change them. They have so much potential. I'm going to bring them up to Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times just the opposite has happened. You know, we've got to ratchet up our resistance, especially in the time in the culture that we're living in. Romans 13, verses 11, 12 says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. See, some of us, that's where we're kind of at. We kind of get in this slumber mode. And we're doing our same routine. We're not, we don't hate God and we don't hate other people, but we're just kind of walking through life in the land of numb. Just existing. And Paul says to these Roman believers, it's time to wake up. Why? He says, because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, for, for those of us who are getting older, we got less life ahead of us than we got behind of us. Right? And believe me, I understand that as I'm getting older. But he's also saying, until Jesus comes. See, it's been so long since Jesus comes. Some of us really say, yes, Jesus is coming. We see songs about it. We get excited about it, but we don't live like it's going to happen today. We need to live in light of the fact that all of this is coming to an end. Whether it comes to an end by our life or by the return of Jesus Christ, we need to wake up because we don't have a lot of time. He says, and so let us put aside the deed of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's make sure that we're not getting sucked into the culture. Let's make sure that we are being light in the culture. We need to reevaluate our relationships. Scripture clearly says that believers should not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Now what that's saying is that in our most intimate business associations, in our most intimate human relationships... In other words, if, if two single people fall in love and one just doesn't believe in God or one doesn't want anything to do with God and Jesus Christ, you have no business getting married to that person as a believer. You're only going to have problems. It's only going to end up bad. I've never seen it end up any other way unless perhaps the other person comes to faith, which you can't count on. You say, well, I, that's what's going to happen. No, you can't count on that. Business partners who get in business with people who then all of a sudden they start saying, hey, you know, we've got we to make money, man. We, we, we're going to have to cut a couple, couple corners here. And see, that's what happens. But it doesn't mean that we should not have any interaction with non-believers. We need to have people in our life as led by God, as led by the Holy Spirit, who are kind of like projects. These are people we're praying for every day. These are people we're particularly reaching out to. We're trying to make an influence in their life. And every one of us know people like that. Every one of us know people on the job. Every one of us know people in our families that need a little extra attention, extra little care. And so we need to reevaluate our, our relationships. Remember what Paul said, as we saw last week, Romans 10, verse 13 and 14, says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's plan. That's God's desire, and he wants to use us to help that come to fruition in everybody's life. But then Paul asks the question, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching them? In other words, 
We need to live quiet lives, sensitive lives, peaceful lives, but we need to be out there. We need to be a bridge. We need to be a light. People need to see something different in us than they see in themselves. And how are they going to hear how much God loves them? How are they going to know that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance in him? That's why we're here. That's the purpose of our life now that we've become believers until Jesus takes us home or until Jesus returns. So we need to readjust those routines. Let's think about it. Are, are we in, living in the land of numb? If we're living in the land of numb, let's break the routine. We need, we need to ratchet up our resistance. We need to make sure that we're not getting pulled down to the world, but that we're rising above where culture is, where the world is. It says, then let your conversation next be always full of grace. Now, let's look at that again. Let your conversation, now, your conversation with who? Outsiders, non-believers he's talking about. Let it always be full of grace. Now, what's grace? Well, Webster defines grace as a disposition to act with kindness, courtesy, or clemency. So what are we supposed to do? If we read that again, let your conversation be always full of kindness, courtesy, and clemency when we're talking with others, outsiders, non-believers. So I got to thinking, okay, how is, is mine? It's my conversation when I'm, I'm talking to outsiders, unbelievers, who in the university setting that I get with, some of them are really obstinate, and they, they have a whole different worldview than I have, I got to tell you. And sometimes they're out there, and they can be very condescending the other way, right? And how can you believe that stuff? Oh, you my conversation, how's my response? It should be kind. It should be courteous. But it also means unmerited favor, grace does. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, when it says, for it is, by, it is through grace we are saved. Through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Grace is unmerited favor. God offers us eternal life. God offers us et eternal forgiveness of our sins, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace. He just wants it to be that way out of his love. And so we need to let our conversation with outsiders, with unbelievers, be driven by kindness, courtesy, and clemency, whether or not they deserve it. And more often than not, they're not going to deserve it. But that's why it's a radical relationship. Because people who are condescending and people who are aggressive towards us and people who are nasty towards us, does that evoke our best response? No, because we're human beings. We have flesh too. When someone attacks us and attacks someone that we love particularly, well, we want to go to battle with that person. But Scripture calls us in our action, interactions with unbelievers, to have a radical relationship, even though they don't deserve our kindness, even though they don't deserve our courtesy. That's how we're to respond. That's what he's saying. MacArthur again says, to speak with grace means to say what is spiritual. My conversation with people should be spiritual. It should be wholesome. I shouldn't be along with the guys, telling the stories, along with the gals. Fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. That's our goal. That's our ambition. To live quiet lives and to have our conversation characterized by these characteristics. 
Proverbs 16, 23 says, a, man's, a wise man's heart guides his mouth. In other words, we just don't let it go and let whatever we're thinking come out of our mouth. We pause and we contemplate. How can I bring healing at this moment? How can I bring this sense of a quiet peace? How can I respond in a constructive way? Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. See, that's a, Christianity is an other faith movement. It's not about me. It's about how I can be a blessing to others, how I can influence others, how I can have others follow my godly example. But he does say, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, today we take salt for granted because salt is one of the cheapest condiments that we can get, the cheapest spices, it's everywhere. But back in the ancient day, it was a value. It was treasured in the ancient days. It was treasured for three properties that salt has. The first is it adds flavor. It adds flavor. A lot of people like a lot of salt on their food. I remember my, my dad, he used to take uh, Granny Smith apples, green apples, and he'd sit in his chair and he'd take a paring knife, and he'd, he'd, he'd cut the apple, he'd turn the piece over, and he had a salt shaker, and he'd salt that thing. And he'd eat the apple that way. And he used to feed me pieces like that. And I'd go, wow, man, that is like really cool. But we love salt because it adds flavor. So how does that translate to, to our radical relationship with others, outsiders? We're to add flavor to their life. It should be a positive thing, our interaction with them. We should be something that tastes good, and we should present something to them that tastes good. As the proverb says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? good. See, we should be a presence of salt in their life that causes a good flavor of the Lord. Why? Because we live quiet lives. We're not gossips. Because we work hard. And because we, we live an exemplary life. But salt also purifies. In the ancient days, it was one of the chief antiseptics. When someone would get a cut, they'd put salt in it. Now, it's still a great way to, to cure things. When I get a canker sore in my mouth, I pull my lip out and I just salt it. And I dance for a while because <laughs> it burns. But for me, there's nothing that works faster. I got to do that one time, endure the pain, dance around a little bit, and whatever happens, whatever salt does, it does it almost immediately for me, and it kind of gets crusted over or something like that, but I don't have the pain anymore of it. And sometimes, you know, we need to be salt. We need to be antiseptic in people's lives. Now, being quiet and being sensitive and kind and loving doesn't mean that we don't address sin and that we don't point out danger. I'm working on a series that I hope to, to release after the first of the year, and I've been working on it for years. And it's a very sensitive series that I'm going to call Untouchables. We're going to talk about the things that you're not supposed to talk about anymore. And things that everyone's afraid to talk about in our society today. And when I present that series, I'm praying, and I want you to even be praying for me now that I can present it in such a way that, that it's a loving presentation. And it presents love and not hatred, not condescension. But, but anyhow, it, it purifies. And sometimes we gotta, we got to sit down and say, you know, I love you, man. But 
one of the reasons that your life is filled with so much chaos is because of this or because of that or because of this or because of that. And, and until you address that, until you deal with that, your life is going to continue to be chaotic. Your life is going to be continue to be characterized by pain. See, sometimes we just got to sit down. We got to be honest. We got to pull the trigger. We got to tell people that they have to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. See, the gospel is salt. It's an antiseptic. It's, a, it's the antidote to eternal separation from God. And we need to be sharing that information with people. It also preserves. In the ancient world, they would use salt to preserve meat, fish, anything that could perish. It was one of the only things they had that would slow down. Today we have all these preservatives that we put into food. And you read packages, you know, you buy it today and it says it's good until 2098, you know. <laughs> it's got a lo- I'm afraid to eat that stuff. But in the old days, they had salt. They either smoked it or they salted it. Usually they smoked it and salted it, both. It was a preservative. Let me tell you, the world that we live in, and let me just narrow it down to our backyard, America, the United States, is increasingly rejecting the standards of God. They want it out of here. They don't want to be held accountable to it. They don't want to hear about it. In fact, we're going to see increasingly attempts to make Christian principles hate crimes. It's happening in other countries. It's already happened in other countries. And it's going to continue to be a movement here in our own backyard. But you know what? We need to preserve biblical worldview in our world. We need to preserve it. We need to be the agents of preservation. We need to not cower. We need to stand tall, lovingly, gently, but we need to have a firm, committed presence. You know, I I say when we get to elections in our church, and, and people get upset with me, and we've had people leave the church over this, and I tell our church, for those of you who are new to our church, that we're neither Republicans or we're Democrats, we're theocrats. In other words, when we cast our vote, we should do it from a biblical worldview. Why? Because we're agents of salt. We're preservation agents. And if we don't elect people as close as we can who embrace biblical values, then when we lose all of our rights as believers, we have no one to blame but ourselves. People get mad with me. Even though I have never, ever mentioned the name of a candidate for any office in a message. Now, we introduce local candidates when they come just so you can get to meet them, but I don't endorse them. But we need to to vote biblically. We need to look for candidates who want to pass on biblical values because that's our job. We're salt and light. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. That means you're the flavor of the earth for me. You you, you show people that that, that I taste good. You're, you're, You're the... The purifiers, you're the one who will sit down lovingly and say, thus saith the Lord. But you're the body of Christ. You're the preserve values. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If we keep surrendering everything to our culture, then we're never going to get it back. If we lose our reputation, we can't get it back. It says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And that's exactly what a whole lot of people want to do. Throw it all out. Get rid of it. 
Finally, he says, you need to do all these things so that you may know how to answer everyone. When people come and challenge us, say, well, have, have I not been wise in my conversation with you? Haven't I not been sensitive with you? Help me understand why, why you're upset with me. Have I, have I not always tried to, to be courteous to you? Have I not always tried? Help me understand where you see that I haven't done that so that I can correct it because I want to be loving and courteous to you. See, we give an answer of why, what we believe, why we're purifying agents. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Oh, if there's ever been a time that we need to do that, it's now. We need to set ourselves apart. We don't need to be chameleons. We don't need to join movements other than the movement that Jesus Christ established 2,000 years ago. We need to set ourselves apart. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. We need to be ready. We need to be salt. We need to be purifying agents. But look what it says. But do it with what? Gentleness and respect. It's hard for people to resist gentleness and respect, isn't it? They don't believe with us, but if we're generous and respectful towards them, most folks will at least hear us out, especially those we have a relationship with. Well, God has called us to some radical relationships. They really are. But you know, one day he's going to reward us for being radical, not for being passive, not for being secret, but for being radical. In the relationships we have, husbands and wives, in the relationships parents we have with our kids, in the relationships we have between employers and employees, whichever side of that formula we're on, and between believers and non-believers. Man, we have a lot to do. What an exciting life that we have an opportunity to live. We can make an influence in people's lives for all eternity. Tell me anywhere else that you can do that. Father, help us to, to take your word now and to apply it to our lives. As James said, we need to be careful not to deceive ourselves by being hearers of the word only and not doing it. So, Lord, help us to ratchet it up today. Help us to employ these things that we've learned throughout our entire study and our journey through Colossians and use it to become stronger for you, to be a stronger presence in our area of influence and, Lord, to bring glory to you because that's what we want to do. Be glorified through this church and through every member of this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.